Hello again, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to have you with us. And Philip, great to have you with us again as well. As always, great to be back. Did you enjoy the conversation at the Nexus Conference last week? Oh, it was a little bit too much about me, but otherwise I thought it was very helpful that we look back into the history of what's happened and uh, follow through the theme of the conference of trembling at God's word. It was a useful conversation, I think, and I appreciate your embarrassment, but it was useful to look back. And I want to bounce off that this week in this week's episode to talk about history because it's something we only really touched on really lightly in the conversation, and that is the importance of learning from history and what it means to learn from history. Why is history important? Well, history is really, I think, valuably important because how do we understand who we are? How do we understand how we got to be where we are? How, how do we understand why we're doing the things that we do? You, you cannot understand Australian life unless you understand something of the history of Australia. Um, you can't understand your own life. See, how did your family get to be here? What happened that got them here? And why did they go to the north coast and... Why do, why do they go into farming? It's, it all tells things about you to know that you grew up on a farm in the north coast of New South Wales, just like it tells you things about me to know that I grew up around Bondi Junction with the son of a printer. It, it's who we are, where we've come from, how we got there. It's history. It's interesting, though. That's a view of the world that, in a sense, is a more Christian view of the world than we sometimes recognise that the history of our lives are linear. They go back into the past and they travel forward into the future and that there's some kind of meaning to be found or something to be gained by looking back and seeing that I'm actually part of a whole sequence of events that headed somewhere and is going somewhere and it sort of places me and explains me to some extent that I'm in this linear sequence of events. But not everybody views history that way. No, and certainly they won't see it as meaningful. Uh, the meaning comes from uh, God. It doesn't come from elsewhere. And so the reason I am where I've come from is an accident, unless it's under a sovereign God who is in control of the world, and it is his control of the world that gives meaning. I mean, understanding where I've come from will give me understanding, but it won't give me meaning. It's just I understand how the accident worked in my case. But why I was there, well, it was an accident. So that actually comes from our theology. But then the linear concept of history comes from that theology. So you don't have... Buddhism doesn't have a linear view. It has a circular view, like in the same way the Stoics did in the ancient Greek world, that life never actually went anywhere. They, they're consumed by the present moment. And the present moment is just part of a circular running around and around, you know, we get up, we, we, we eat, we drink, we go to work, we finish the day, we go back to bed, we do it again tomorrow, we do it again tomorrow, and life is like that movie that we're... Groundhog Day. Yeah, the Groundhog Day is, captures the meaninglessness of our existence. It's interesting, though, because in a sense the Bible does reflect that in some way like Ecclesiastes, that yeah. observation that life does seem to go round and round and round, that from our perspective in the middle of it, it's very hard to get a sense of of everything that's happened as yes, it's happening. Yes. And yet at the same time, the wisdom literature taken as a whole 
presents a more complex and meaningful picture of what life is like. Yes, and the wisdom literature comes in the context of the whole Bible, which gives us creation and gives us the end of the world, gives us judgment that the world is created by a God who calls us to be responsible and therefore establishes a righteousness which has right and wrong, justice and injustice and punishment. And he also tells us of his plan of a new heavens and a new earth. So the concept of the linear view of history actually comes out of the Bible. The concept of the meaningfulness of this linear comes from the Bible. So Luke Ferry writes a book on the history of philosophy. And, you know, he says, well, the key thing you've got to understand is death. That's, and so he sees everybody's history as linear but it all ends in the meaningless of the grave. It doesn't go anywhere. It's a good book because he does acknowledge that Christianity gives us a, a bigger view of the world than the Greek philosophers did. But it's a hopeless book because he then says, well, but there is no point other than death, so the Buddhists are right. But he goes on to say that Shrebinetsky, looking at the terrible actions, means there is a meaning. There is a right and wrong. Because they're terrible. Yes, he just doesn't know what it is. If we go back to the wisdom literature and the complex and really quite beautiful picture it paints of the world, it does carry within it those two kinds of trajectories or frames that the world is an ordered place because there's an order that God has built into the world. And so the world works because God has created the world by wisdom, which you see in Proverbs chapter 8. And so the world is not only right and good, but the world functions and achieves its purposes so that we who live in the world can actually recognise that. And not only is there an order within the world in a sense of how the world is organised and set up, but there's, a, there's an order to where it's going. And that's what we've been saying, that, that it's an order that's going somewhere, that has a future, that has a direction in the purposes of God. Yes, it's a macro order that is going somewhere. It's a micro order of what I do today. Uh, what I do today is only part of the huge history of, of the universe. In fact, it's so small what I'm doing today that it doesn't even come out as a blip. But yet I've got to do today and what I do today will affect tomorrow. And that's the reason you have wisdom and you pass on wisdom because understanding what to do today and learning from the order of the world takes time. And it's over that time as things are repeated over and over again. And we see time and time again that if you don't work, you don't eat. Or if you're lazy, you end up impoverished. Or if you're indiscreet, it will be to your ruin. You you learn these lessons that you see over time because you see them repeated again and again. In a sense, that's what proverbial wisdom of that kind is. Yes, but there's a couple of things about it. Uh, the, the idea of you study history because history repeats itself, I don't think is true. That is, the macro history is not going to repeat itself. The micro history will, <laughs> because I'm lazy today, you're lazy, yeah, we're not going to eat, you know, we're not going to plant our crops, we're not going to harvest them in six months' time. And that's that micro wisdom is repeatable. Because it says something about the nature of the way the world is. Yes, and the way God's made it and made made it and made us to look after it. But the fascinating thing about Proverbs is it also um, recognises the other side of it, that in the midst of history, when you're right in the middle of it, 
it's often very difficult to perceive what's going on or to see the pattern or to figure out what is going to happen next or which particular part of the pattern is happening now that I could recognize and know what to do. And this is the message of, a, of Ecclesiastes and of Job, of course, as well. In the midst of Job's suffering, he hasn't a clue what's going on. Why is this happening to me? Why are these disasters befalling me? His comforters have various responses and answers, of course, which are wrong because they don't know either. And so in that sense, understanding the regularities of history is something you do by looking back on them with the benefit of distance. Um, But in the midst of them, you need to trust what God is saying and how he directs us, given that we're just not sure what the future is going to hold. Yes, we do learn looking back and seeing it from history. But more fundamentally, we learn by the fact that God has told us. And so even when I'm looking back in history to see things, I will see it through the lens of what God has said. That is how it is explained to me. Without God speaking, I'm not even sure I'd understand history. I would see outcomes, but I wouldn't be sure which outcomes came from what and which was important or not. And so, likewise, in the midst of life, I have the Word of God telling me what to do. Which you're right. Some of the situations, like Job, there is no word for me to know, other than, say, trust God in the midst of it. But there are other passages where I know what to do tomorrow or today because I've been told. Don't be lazy. You know? Don't be a sluggard. There's lovely sluggard proverbs, aren't there? You know? <laughs> it's almost as good as my favourite one, which is uh, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. I used to teach that to my children often. They, they loved that one. Yes. Your daughters? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Dad. I'd say it again. So history, does that mean that history can only be written with the benefit of hindsight? And distance to get that hindsight, yes. In the midst of the struggles and trials of life, you really can't form an opinion other than the opinion of what God has said that we should do because you do not yet know the outcome. And that's the problem, therefore, of living as you and I have been living in an age of huge social change. In an age where nothing much changes from one generation to another, it is easy to form an opinion of what to do and how to do it. But in an age where we are going through incredible social change, I, I would say, apart from war, we've never seen a period of history with greater social change. Um, and indeed, it's bigger than some wars. And so in the midst of social change, we're being told this is progress. That is conservatism. Conservatism in the sense of being wrong. Stuck in the past. Stuck in the past. And progress in terms of being right. And frankly, we don't know it is progress. And we don't know whether stuck in the past is better or is worse. Progress could be better, but it may not be. We don't know. Which is the problem with the utilitarian way of making decisions generally. And it's interesting that it's kind of all we've got in our modern culture, having abandoned God, having abandoned the idea that there is any actual right and wrong, that there's any revelation that might direct us in the midst of the confusing complexity of life. We say all we really have is, will this work? Will it generate better outcomes, however we define better? And we don't even quite know how to define better, but will it result in more happiness and general goodness somehow down the track? 
And so we make a prediction, for example, that making divorce much easier, as we did in the early 1970s, and introduce no-fault divorce, that this will be great. It'll liberate people from dreadful marriages and oppression and the, the terrible suffering of children in bad marriages. It'll be better for society, it'll be better for women, it'll be better for everybody. And it's only 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years down the track you see just how damaging an outcome or a policy that ended up being. Yes, that's absolutely right. Utilitarianism is the only thing the atheist has got left. And so harm minimization they will talk of. But we don't know what will minimise harm, what will create other harms. So you, you take the divorce one of the 1970s, that's a good illustration of it. You see, if you read the Communist Manifesto written in the 19th century, Lenin, when he came to power in the 20th century, put it into operation with things like no-fault divorce and the acceptance of homosexuality and a 10-day working week and all kinds of things that Marx and Engel thought would be good. Well, they put it into practice. A hundred years later, none of those things are available to you in Russia. They've actually found they didn't work. The sad thing, in a sense, is they are now all being pushed into the Western civilization, We've embraced them in a way that Lenin imposed them. But they didn't work. In other words, the kibbutz in the, after the Second World War in the establishment of Israel, they decided to raise children socially. So instead of families raising the, their own children, children were put into the community's social rate. Well, the children who were raised under that system, when they came of age, they got rid of it. They thought it was terrible. And so this great social experiment, which was so lauded when I was a young man as a wonderful thing, has been completely abandoned because it was a, a disaster. However, you don't know it's a disaster until a generation later, by which time the damage is done. In a conversation at Nexus last week, you mentioned in particular that this is the case with feminism and with the sexual revolution, that more and more writers, non-Christian, atheistic writers, are looking back over the last 50 years of enormous social change in this area and saying it hasn't worked. In fact, it's produced harm, more harm than good. Yes, the, the distance is now happening. The 1960s, early 70s, was the Great Revolution. But now we're 60 years later. <laughs> now we've seen two generations raised in this, this Great Revolution. It's not that they're saying we want to go back to the 50s. In fact, one of them, uh, Mary Harrington, for example, she's very keen. She's, she sees the acceptance of the pill was the disaster, that this was the first time we used medicine not to address sickness or illness in any way, but to actually change the way in which we lived. And it was a technological change which changed the way we lived. It changed the human body, she said. It was the first time we medically enhanced ourselves yes. for our own benefit and for what we saw as, as kind of upgrading ourselves to be mm. a better form of humanity, to do better and different things. Yeah. Um, this is Mary Harrington in her book, Feminism Against Progress. Yes. Well, you get to her last chapter, she, she says, what we've got to do is stop taking the pill. And you think... You know, is this Pope Paul VI? I mean, what, what has happened here? Uh, I'm not necessarily commending her or her book. I'm just saying, though, you now have women, you have a person who's not a Christian, as best I can see in any way, looking back 
with enough distance to say, when you look at what we've done, no, we've got it wrong. We've done more damage than help. And she's saying, well, but the 50s, they were wrong also. They were the settlement of the Industrial Revolution. She would like us to go back before the Industrial Revolution, back to families where you worked at home, both male and female, and you, your work and your life and your home was all integrated like that. And so she's not being a conservative. Let's get back to where my childhood was. Most conservatives don't know history. Most conservatives think that what I grew up with is history, is, is what it's always been. She says, no, 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 the 1950s model of dad going to the office or the factory and mum being at home with the kids, that was the innovation that came out of the Industrial Revolution. Go back before then and you'll have a different structure of family life again. But the one that we had in the 50s was not right. The one that we then moved to has been worse. And so you have a feminist like that who's actually against progress uh, and the progress ideology. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because part of our modern narrative is that industrial progress, technological and economic progress is in itself uh, always a good that we must keep getting richer and keep raising the standard of living. That's the narrative that we that every politician runs on. And yet she's questioning that as well. Yes. Which as a Christian you would also question on the basis that the purpose of money and of wealth and of economic activity is not simply to grow richer and have an ever higher standard of living. It's to serve others and yes. to do good. Yes, and she rightly picks up that the feminists are elitists. You know, it, the changes that have happened have suited the um, elite, you know, the doctor, lawyer, dentist, the, the professional woman. But the vast majority of women haven't been helped. They've been hindered considerably. And she says, you know, I'm part of the elite, she would say, but yet I can see from my studies it's been really bad for women overall. Likewise with wealth. Why, why do we want to grow in wealth for us? For our nation. I mean, if we grew in wealth so that we could help other nations, wouldn't that be a nicer idea? But no, we, uh, we want wealth for us. The other author that you mentioned at Nexus and whose work is also fascinating, I think, is Louise Perry. And she more focuses on the sexual revolution as opposed to feminism as such. Yes. And the problems that are changing and complete upending of, of normal sexual relationships between men and women and marriage, just how damaging that has been, especially for women. Especially for women is her point, and absolutely right. As long as you think men and women are the same and interchangeable, you won't look at the statistics as to what's happening. And she and Mary Harrington are willing to say, well, actually, men and women are different. We're still in the human race. We're the same in one sense, but they're very very significant differences between us that do affect the outcome. And so she would argue that the sexual revolution has been bad for men and for women, but in particular for women it has been bad. And again, she winds up at the end of her book saying what we need to go back to is monogamous lifelong marriage, heterosexual marriage. That's what she will argue for. Now, these are not Christian women. She will argue for abortion. She will argue, although... Mary Harrington talks about killing babies, uh, but she also is pro-abortion. They don't want to go back to a 
imagined 1940s, 50 ideal family life. They, they're not that. But they say the changes we've made have not been, have not delivered the promise that they made for the good betterment of life of people, especially of women. Now, I've opposed feminism for this whole period of time, not because I don't want women to be benefited or the rest of it, but because it seems to me contrary to what the Bible's saying, that the fundamental unit of humanity is the family, not the individual. Whereas feminism, and Mary Harrington's very powerful on this, has atomised society into individualism. And the failure to understand God has created us, male and female, so as to be united together in procreation, he's made us different for the very purpose. This kind of teaching from the Bible, I'm sorry to say, a lot of Christian people, they've tried to massage, reinterpret, re relocate it in culture in order to embrace the cultural change of progressivism. And yet, now with a little bit of historical distance, even the non-Christian feminists, both these women who call themselves feminists, are beginning to see it doesn't work. It's actually been a bad thing. It's sad to hear Christians still trying to argue for feminism, accommodating themselves to the society and to cultural change, rather than trembling at the word of God. It's a failure to trust deeply in the truth, not just of the word, as if it's a word that comes out of nowhere and only applies to Christians, but to see that the word of God expresses the wisdom of God by which he made the world and by yes. which he governs and rules the world. Especially in these areas, it's the culture of creation. It's the ethics of creation that are involved. But no, they're wanting to so locate it in British imperialism. So the challenge for Christians is, as always, to keep trusting the word, to keep trembling at the word, as we said last week, to keep being driven by what God has told us, given our finitude, given that we don't know everything, that we're creatures, not the creator. We depend upon him for an understanding of the whole and of how the bits work, of how yes. the order of creation is meant to be lived in and what it means to participate in and enjoy and receive all the good things of creation in the way that he made them. And yet we so easily... I guess this is what it means to be sinful, isn't it? We so easily distrust that word and think we know better and can figure it out for ourselves. That's right. And <laughs> we have some other people. See, uh, Professor Bradford Wilcox, he's gathered together the scholarship of North America to look at why marriage matters. All kinds of 30 reasons he gives why marriage matters. Any Christian will read it and say, yes, this is obvious because it's what the Bible teaches. But these poor people have had to go and investigate the outcomes of social changes and alternatives to come up with the answers of what the Bible has been teaching in the first place. Because sociologists can show the Bible is right, does not make the Bible right or give me any more reason to trust the Bible in the first place. But it does challenge those who want to leave the Bible behind in the futile hope of thinking that they know how to live better than God does. A phrase that we've sometimes used to describe this approach to knowledge and living is principled pragmatism. Yes, it's a good one, isn't it? That is, there is a wisdom in the world put there by God that we can see and observe and by which we can live such that we can make decisions in the pragmatic 
a scope of everyday life as to what to do next and observe what's happening in the world. And yet at the same time, it must always be principled. There's always something that's driving your pragmatism. And those principles need to be the biblical ones, the ones of the God who created everything. Principle pragmatism, is that a good way to put it? It is, especially when you realise that pragmatism is one of the principles of the Bible. So it's not, they're not alternatives to each other. They come from each other. When Paul tells Timothy about ministering, ministering the gospel in church ministries, he uses illustrations from the soldier, from the farmer, from the athlete. That is, this is the way the world works, and therefore our churches should work in the way the world works. It's a biblical principle to be pragmatic. But our problem is some of us are too pragmatic and not principled, and some of us are so principled we forget that that fundamental principle of pragmatism. And so in our principles we fail to make the sensible, wise decisions of wisdom, of proverbs, because we are principled. And on the other hand, there are some who... I've got to make this work. Whatever I do, it's got to work. I've got to minimise harm. I've got to, and we forget it's the word of God that tells us not to steal, not to covet, not to. There's principles by which we operate. And we've been talking here today largely about how we think about such important things as how men and women relate, who who men and women are, how we organise our marriages, our lives, our societies, our families. But the same is true, of course, in Christian ministry, as you've sort of started to allude to that. Uh, it's very easy to get those two two things wrong there as well, to be either so principled in our ministry that we never change anything or think carefully about what should happen, but also so driven by a kind of go-getting, confident understanding of what must what we must do in order to make it work that we're not driven by the principles of what the Bible's telling us that ministry is really about. So to draw this together, we're saying that history is really important, but it can't really be understood apart from the history of God in this world. Yes, that's right. It's the problem of making social policies on the basis of difficult, hard cases of minorities. And today, if you make a generalisation of social policy on almost any subject, people are hurt because they... But you haven't taken into account my particular situation. But hard cases make bad laws. We still need the social policy to operate. However, we as Christians are always concerned for minorities and for caring for the individual who does suffer, and the, the widow, the orphan. They're the people we are particularly concerned for, the stranger in our gates. So, and so we have history today being taught in our schools, which is no longer the history of our society or our nation. It's now the history of the oppressed peoples. It's the history of the minorities. That's a very Christian thing to do, to teach that. And so don't, don't say it's just progressive. It's Christian. We are concerned for the minorities and for the oppressed and to be honest about our participation in the oppression of minorities. But, of course, if that's all your history, you haven't got any understanding of yourself. I mean, that's, that ultimately is only one aspect of our life, is our oppression of other people. There's all kinds of other good things that need to be told as well. Christianity is concerned with truth. The truth that's embarrassing and nasty, the truth that is elevating and wonderful. We're concerned for truth. Christian history is really important to be telling because that has been censored out altogether. That is the role and place that Christianity has played 
in the development of our society. And I think that's where those books by Stuart Piggin have been so helpful in Australia, recasting Australian history to include the Christian contributions. Philip, I think that's a good point to round off about the importance of history and how to fit that into our understanding of God and the way he's made this world. If you've got any thoughts or feedback on this episode, as always, please do get in touch. You can just email me at tonyjpayne at me.com. And of course, don't forget that Two Ways News has a website and uh, a newsletter. It'd be great if you signed up for that. You could get notifications each week that the new episodes are coming out. And you also got the text or an edited transcript of each episode that you can read or can forward on to other people. Uh, sign up for that at twoways.news. It's free to sign up to get it every week. And also there's an option there if you'd like to support us in this work we're doing, which of course we'd appreciate. You can do that as well at the website at twoways.news. One of the great supports is to tell other people about it. Forward it on, pass it on. Yes. Absolutely. Please do that. And you can do that, of course, on just by sharing this episode, the audio of it, or the text uh, on your different social media feeds, but just encouraging your friends, forwarding on the email to them and encouraging them to sign up. Well, thanks again for being with us this week. Philip, why don't you close in prayer, as we often do here, uh, praying that we would trust the God who reveals himself to us in the midst of our history. Sure. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have spoken, that you have told us of your creation and of your judgment and of your purposes and plans to fill the earth with the glory of your gospel. We thank you that we know what it is that you want of us as you have made it clear to us in your word. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to understand our history in the light of your word that we may always tremble at what you have said to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.